Turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. changed my mind. I want to read all eight verses, beginning verses there. We'll be addressing verse 5 through 8, but it says, uh, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavers is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not man, let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Now, in our last study, we saw that the life of the child of God is a life of temptation, that being trials and tribulation. What does that mean? I don't want to wear that word out, but I want to just get you on a train of thought that maybe it'll help all of us. What does that mean? A life of trials and tribulation to the, to the believer I'm talking about now. It's what we, by our own depraved natures, would call or consider a life of trouble a life of worry, anxiety, burdens, affliction, adversity, hardship, tragedy, trauma, difficulty, problems, misfortune, suffering, distress, misery, Wretchedness, just plain old unhappy, sad, full of heartache and grief and even pain. That is the life of a believer. James said in verse 2 that we should count it all joy when we fall into these trials. And he stated why we should do so. These trials and temptations and these struggles are trials of faith. That's what this book is all about, James. 
had the wrong conception of it for most of my life. It's a book about faith. It's a book that promotes faith, not works. Everyone mistakes this book to be a, a book that that uh, presents works as a necessary thing. No place in this book does it come does it say that our salvation comes by any work. These struggles and trials of faith, for that reason, because they are struggles of faith, these trials. They have to do with the object of faith. Now think about that. What is the object of faith? Faith's just not some puff of smoke out here that we call faith. Faith has an object, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means that that the design of these God-ordained trials is to bring us to lay at the feet of our sovereign Lord, all of them, all of them, who sends these things, he sends these things to wean us from the world and teach us not to murmur and complain against his providence. I was thinking this morning, you remember the, you remember the woman that had the issues, the issue of blood, a menses problem. She bled continually. She had it for 12 years. She, I picture it as sneaked up. She sneaked up behind Christ and touched the border. That's the lowest part of his robe. And she was crawling. So many people around, she couldn't get to him walking. She crawled in between everybody's legs. And she got to him and she touched the hem of his garment. And immediately, her issue of blood stopped. And Christ said, who touched me? Who touched me? And when everybody denied it, Peter said to him, Lord, there's a whole throng here around you. They're pressing against you, following you, bumping up against you. Why how do you, you know, why would you ask who touched you? He said somebody touched me. That's exactly what he said. Somebody touched me because I perceive that virtue is gone out of me. That word virtue is our word for dynamite, dunamis. Dynamite has gone out of me. And when the woman discovered that she'd been caught, she came to him, fell down in front of him, and declared unto him and all the people what cause she had touched him and how she had been healed immediately. And this is what our Lord said to her. He said, Daughter, be of good comfort. Your faith, your faith has made you whole. Her problem, her trial, her temptation 
her suffering, her pain, her anxiety, and all those things forced her, brought her, lured her to the Lord Jesus Christ. His person. His person. Keep that in mind as we go further. Today, the passage that we consider here addresses the fact that when these trials come, the believer sometimes, if not always, has questions. That woman had been to a dozen physicians. None of them could help her. She did everything that with her own flesh and her own mind that she thought might help her. She tried. Her last straw was going to Christ. That's where the Lord brings us. That's where the Lord brings us. We always, most always, have questions. And sadly, we're born to natural, free will, works, religion. And our questions often reveal that we're not completely done with works. Why me? Why did this happen to me? Why did it, why, what have I done? We wonder what we've done wrong in the past that has brought such judgment upon us. Now, that, that word I used intentionally, judgment upon us. But that thinking is wrong. It's just wrong on a lot of levels. Let's look for a minute at what that really means. First of all, thinking that some sin that we committed in the past caused our trial, what we call judgment, is to think that we have no sin in the present. I, I did that way back then. What happened now? Well, I've been, I've been, I'm not sinning now. Is that arrogance or what? Second of all, that sort of re reasoning reveals that we're in unbelief concerning the truth that all our judgment was finished in the suffering of Christ. That's not judgment. That's not, that's not, uh, that's not even a consideration. And thirdly, such thinking indicates that we just might be able to undo the trial that we're enduring by some good admirable deed that we might do now. In other words, reform. And the fact is that these trials are necessary. It's called medicine for our souls. At least I call it that. And the language used in verse 4, if you'll look at it, let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect and entire wanting nothing. When are we going to be perfect and entire? Ask yourself questions when you read these words. When we shed this flesh, when we leave it in the grave, that's when we're going to be perfect and entire. And in the meantime, we grow in grace and in knowledge We're in a fight to keep the faith 
we feel a need to understand. And the amazing thing is, in our our fleshly what what I what what should be termed our fleshly need to understand things that are happening to us, and what we're enduring and what we're going through, and all that stuff is. Our feel our need our need to understand is shown in his compassion in our Lord's compassion and understanding. He says these words, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Kid says, uh, why? Daddy says, because I said so. That's not what our Lord does. That's not what he does. He says, if you lack wisdom, ask of God. Now the context of these words indicates that the wisdom that is lacked here and to be asked for is not a general wisdom such as what's required to get an MBA at some university. That's not the wisdom this is talking about. It's wisdom specific to the trial of faith that one believer is going through, a believer is going through. The wisdom of God alone can give an answer to this. It'll it'll bring us to rejoice and count it a joy when we fall into these temptations and it teaches us patience as we've already seen. Now folks might stop there, stop here with just the first part of verse 5. But our Lord goes on to quantify what It is to ask for wisdom. First, notice the gracious statement that God gives to his seeking statement, seeking saints, I'm sorry. It's a promise and it's full of mercy and grace. God declares that he'll give this wisdom liberally. Look at it. Verse five. John Gill said that that word liberally in verse 5, means readily, at once, and cheerfully, largely, and abundantly, liberally, with an open hand and in a very extensive manner, not grudgingly, sparingly. The believer can count on that. In the time of designated temptation or trial, if he asks for this wisdom, God will give it freely and immediately. And second of all, God will never hold them asking for this wisdom against them. In verse 6, it says, He upbraideth not. That means that even though Our asking suggests weakness and ignorance. Our gracious and all-wise God will never charge you or reproach you for asking. This is a true comfort to us who believe that God's absolutely sovereign because we often think that asking God during times of trouble is the same as questioning or murmuring 
against him and his providence. And verse 6 puts that idea to rest. He upbraideth not. The rest of the passage is a distinction concerning what this wisdom is and the way it's to be asked for. There must be a right way to ask because verse 6 begins with the conjunction, but. In verse 6. And that suggests that seeking for wisdom can be done in the wrong way. I guess that means there's a right way and a wrong way. The one who asks must ask for this wisdom in faith. Verse 6. Let him ask in faith. (coughs) Desiring Christ and and the things of Christ when he asks. He must ask believing, trusting in Christ, and nothing wavering. That stipulation gives us a true understanding of that wisdom that's sought. The word wavering suggests doubt or judgment. And to not waver is to be centered in our understanding concerning the source of the trial. The Lord further restricts with the word nothing. That means... That whatever wisdom is sought allows for no other wisdom that can be, and, and there can be no additions to it. This is the the wisdom sought here is the wisdom of God. Let him ask God. The Lord restricts that word, using nothing, and that means that whatever wisdom is sought allows for no other wisdom, and the wisdom sought is the only answer to bring you to understanding your trial. A believer that wavers is like the waves of the sea, verse 6, tossed about and driven by the wind. That word wind is important because in Scripture it's most often representative of God's Spirit. There's a verse over in Isaiah 40, it says this, the voice said cry, that's a preacher, and he, the preacher, said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field, the grass withereth, and the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord blows upon it. The wind. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth and the flower fadeth, but the word of the Lord shall stand forever, showing that the wind is a metaphor for God's Spirit. Notice the things that are connected with the Spirit here. The, the preacher is told to preach. What I just read, the preacher is told to preach. And what he preaches is the word of the Lord. And Isaiah is teaching us that the Spirit blows upon men with the word spoken through the preacher. Now clearly the language of our text suggests that the wind tosses and drives men to ask for wisdom. 
You see that? While wavering in faith is not the word of the Lord, but it's another word. Paul admonished that in Ephesians. He said, we, hence, we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. And again, we're shown <coughs> the exclusiveness of that wisdom that's to be asked for. If a person, verse 7, if a person also, or ask, if a person asks wavering, the Lord guarantees that he'll receive nothing from the Lord. This verse is still centered in the context now. It's not a general statement that might include temporal things such as riches or honor among men, status and such, but it concerns the wisdom that's being sought here. Wisdom from God concerning your trial and your, or temptation. If you don't seek the only wisdom that God gives, you'll receive nothing. That's to paraphrase it. And clearly you won't receive this wisdom liberally and without reproach. Later on, James says, you ask, but you ask amiss. The final restriction is the true nature of asking wisdom, wavering, while wavering. It's to be double-minded. Verse 8. A double-minded man is unstable in all his way. They speak vanity, every one with his neighbor. Listen to this. With flattering lips and with a double heart do they speak. The light of the body is the eye, and therefore thine eye be single. If thine, if thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, the whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that's in thee be darkness... How great is that darkness? The only way to be double-minded, not to be double-minded, is to be single-minded. <laughs> is that profound or what? But we are naturally double-minded. Think about it. Because Adam, as our federal head, opted to add, he had, one, he had single knowledge. He was a righteous man. He was upright and perfect. And he opted to give up his single knowledge of good to add that second knowledge, which is of evil. Good and evil. Since then, all of us have been afflicted with the death he suffered, knowing good and evil. Does that make sense? We're double-minded. We will depend on the flesh until God draws us, gives us life, gives us faith, and the mind to trust him spiritually. A spiritual rebirth, a new man, Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
but you still got that flesh that you got from Adam, that depraved nature, and you'll fight it all of your believing life. All of us have been afflicted with that malady. Paul described it. He said, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil's present with me. That's the conflict. New man, old man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. That simply means that the wisdom that's asked for can't come from inside of us. It's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not our logic, not our answer, not what we think is right. It's what God says. The wisdom required can't involve our participation. It doesn't come from us. This wisdom is Singular. This wisdom is the wisdom of God. Follow me here. It must be sought in faith. And this wisdom comes from outside of us. It, it gives us understanding of our trials. And it allows us to count it all joy when we fall into divers temptations. This wisdom is the object of our faith. This wisdom is Christ. The wisdom spoken of, spoken of here means Christ. Let him ask of God if any man lack wisdom. James 3.17 says, but the wisdom that's from above is pure. That's where that wisdom has to come from. Then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy, good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. 1 Corinthians Paul said, but we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness, sanctification and redemption, Christ is made of God to all of his people. Wisdom as well as righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Let him ask Christ. Let him ask of God. Christ is God's gift and God is bound by his covenant promises. Bound by his covenant promises and Christ by his oneness with the Father and with his people to the, be the strength of his people. That's where our strength is. And in our weakness, we are strongest in faith. The triune God has promised to be their portion forever. Think on that for a minute. God's faithfulness in his covenant promises is engaged to all of this. Again, we're, we're commanded to count it all joy when we fall into diverse temptations and trials. That's plain and positive assurance 
that the end of all trials must be a blessed ending. If it's true, and it is, that a child of God is to rejoice in the trial, it must be from the love of God that is brought into it, that He's brought into it. Because God loved us. Think of the love of your child in chastening them, guiding them, giving them direction. God manifests His love in bringing us, His children, to the trial. Those whom the Lord loves, He chastens. God manifests His love in carrying them through it. Christ, the wisdom of God, is sure to be with them in every part of it. And God's glory and His child's happiness is the final result that He'll bring out of it. You say, how's that so? It's because He's promised. Everything's going to be all right. In the end, listen now, in the end, God is glorified when this wisdom is given. Christ is honored. Satan is subdued. And the child of God is brought into conformity to Christ's image and he's made more than conqueror through him. And our strength is perfected in weakness. In weakness we find the wisdom that brings a consciousness of our daily need of Christ, just like we have to have our daily bread. And let's seek to the grace to seek Christ in these situations. Finding that wisdom, we shall then be able with the Apostle James upon every occasion of trial to sing the same song. Thanks be unto God who always causes us to triumph in Christ. In the midst of trial, Ask for this wisdom in faith. That's what, Paul, that's what James is saying. Don't waver. The understanding that you'll receive is that this happened for the gospel's sake and your good, our good. We ought to be the happiest people on the face of this earth. Mm-hmm. We ought to be the happiest people on the face of this earth. Yes. The end of all our trials will be our presence with Christ, perfectly conformed to His image, to serving, to worshiping forever in a new heaven and a new earth. Who else has that to look forward to besides His children? Last of all, remember this. The Lord said, and I love this, For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on you, saith the Lord my Redeemer. 
It's the Lord. Let him do what seems good in his sight. Yes, sir.